the Christian life is a bit of a conundrum. We live in a horizontal experiential plane, uh, meaning that we live a life with certain routines, going to work, raising children, working out our marriages, planning things. Uh, and, and somewhere along that horizontal life, uh, we want and need God. It seems as though the only time many of us really want and or need God is when some pain or problem or issue comes along that our human resources can't quite repair. Um, thank you all for praying for Jessie, my second daughter, who was in the hospital for two weeks, and she's home and she's recuperating. But there, was, there were a couple of days there where we were very concerned. Was she going to make it? And when those things happen, you know, job and time and to-do list stand still. And you want God to intervene. You want God to do something, right? If you're waiting on a pathology report, if you are the husband and wife are having issues and, and one of you is kind of, you know, maybe moved out or gone away or one of your children is breaking your heart or the financial issue or a lawsuit or something in your personal life, that's when we want God to intervene. And where are you, God? And it seems to me, not to be overly simplistic, but the Christian life is either viewed experientially or theologically. It tends to be that people look at it experientially, that connecting the dots. I was talking to a person just recently who said, you know, we did such and such and such and such, and it was a big risk. And just the other day, God did such and such, and it was a confirmation that what we had done over here was exactly right. Now, part of me just sort of smiles at that and says, you know, nice little view. And part of me says, maybe so. But the experiential view of Christianity, is that how we are to live? Or are we to live in a theological realm where we don't understand it, we sort of compartmentalize it, I live by faith, not by sight. I tend to lean that way. I know it's shocking. I tend to live that way. I don't really analyze the, uh, the experiential very much. I give it very little credence, if any at all. It's a life of faith. And as I've pondered these two, and again, it's overly simplistic. Do you view Christianity in the experience of your day-to-day, -day, or do you view it as a theological construct by which you live? I don't think it's a wedding of the two. I think it's something entirely different. Or let me ask the question in a different way. When you need God, does he, quote, deliver, close quote, the way you want? Even if you pray the right way, even if you're living the right way, even if your experience is good, even if all those, even if you have the right theology, and you want God to answer, to help, to fix something, does it happen in the way or the time or the manner that we want? And that's where the experience lets me down. Now, the higher truth is God always delivers his people. In my almost 60 years of existence on this planet, and however long I've been a Christian, I have to add it up, um, it never seems to happen the way or the manner or the form that I intended. Ever. Maybe it does for you. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. It just does it for me. Whitney Houston's iteration of Psalm 116, the psalm, I love the Lord, He hears my cry. He may not come when you want Him, but He'll be there right on time. Oh, I love that song. It's bad theology. But I love the song. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you almost all the way there, whoever wrote that tune. 
I like the Psalm 116 part, but he'll be there right on time. Some of the Psalms end without an answer. Some of the Psalms are haunting, waiting on God to come through for the believer. The believer in Jesus Christ, and when I use that phrase, Bill, Lloyd, Robert, I use that phrase, a person who's trusted in the work of Jesus Christ, that he lived, he died, he was buried, and that he came back from the dead. If you've put your trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower. You're a Christian by name. For a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I have been and will be delivered. Period. But the manner and form is very hard to understand. That, in a way, is what the story of Esther is all about. Our, our tagline of veiled providence, visible faith that visible faith is living faithfully regardless of our experience. God is working in a way we cannot see, and I would argue may never see on this horizontal planet. And when we try to tie the experiences together, it may be more contrived to our liking than really what God's up to. Let's take a look at this text and see if we can tease out some of this idea. God is going to deliver us, but it may not happen in the manner or the form in which we want him to deliver. Now, at one level, this story is about the nation of Israel, some of whom are still in the Persian Empire. The two primary characters in our storyline, of course, are Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai, being the uncle of Esther, is the more outspoken individual in the storyline. He's the more active character in the storyline. And you could argue that if Mordecai is killed, which is where we were left last week, if Mordecai is killed, impaled on this gallows that uh, Haman is building particularly for the event, the entire nation of Israel is in jeopardy. Because this would be the match that was struck to permit them to exterminate the Jew. This is not the first time or the last time people groups have tried to destroy the Jewish nation. But in light of God's covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, all the way through, uh, this chosen covenant people seem to cling on and to hang on to this bigger plan of God delivering them. Let's take a look at the text. Esther chapter 6, if you come to the book of Job, you've just gone a little too far if you're using a real godly Bible like this. Um, Esther chapter 6, the first three verses, let's look at the insomnia of the text. During the, that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they were sought they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. The king can't sleep. And this is one of those experiential things. We're not told in the storyline why he can't sleep, but he can't sleep. And so he calls for the Persian Chronicles, not the first and second Chronicles you have in your Old Testament, but the Persian Chronicles to be read to him. Dr. Tom Constable likens this to having the congressional record read to you. Uh, maybe there's some humor here. Maybe it was going to put him back to sleep. We don't know for sure. The just-so-happens experience of this story, though, is when they read this portion of the Chronicle, it happens to be about two co-conspirators who were trying to assassinate the king. 
Now, if you're trying to go back to sleep and somebody's reading you a story about a, an attempt that was made on your life and somebody thwarted that attempt, I suspect he was probably fully awake. And he's very interested in this story. And then he hears about this guy, Mordecai. And he, wait, 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 wait. I, know, I didn't know about this part. I didn't know Mordecai was involved in this story. Have we done anything to thank him, to appreciate him? Now, commentaries and scholars go to a, a lot of length explaining the Persian way of awarding and recognizing people. That to me is interesting but immaterial to our text. There was an oversight, and for whatever reason it alarmed the king, and he said, what has been done to thank and honor Mordecai for what he did to essentially thwart this plot? He wants to fix it right away. Now the king's fully awake. Now the irony of the story is rich and the movement of the narrative is quick. So the king is the king. Who can help me rectify this situation? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the recommendation comes. Chapter 6, verse 4. The king said, who is in the court? Let's, let's act on this. Let's do something about this. Where are my nobles? Where are my princes? Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he had prepared for him. So here's, here's the storyline. Haman's at the front door waiting for the king to wake up and call him in. He's a noble. He's the second in command, as Rob taught last week. By the way, if you didn't hear or see Rob Sweet's message last week, I can't commend it enough. It's a great message. You should go back and watch it or listen to it. So here comes, here comes Haman ready to ask the king about, give me permission to kill Mordecai on this impaling gallows, that I, this ostentatious thing I've built to show the Jew who they really are and put Mordecai in his place. Just so happens he's the one in the court. Verse 5, the king's servant said, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. The king said, Let him come in. Now, you got to love the way this text is written. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. Stop for just a second. Um, this is not the king's crown. It's the horse's crown. The king would not give his crown to somebody else to wear. It just wouldn't happen. You'd be making him king. Um, if you go to Persopolis, P-E-R-S-E-opolis, Persopolis, you can do a Google image search. I encourage you to waste some time doing this. It's fascinating. And you will find in the images um, what they, every woman in this room knows what an updo is, right? Okay, think of a horse with an updo. <laughs> you take the mane of the horse and you pull it between its ears, and you have a little fan between its ears. That meant that was the king's horse. So it was a very fine arrangement you did on this great horse to identify it as the king's horse. So you're going to put him in a king's robe that you've worn. You're going to put him on a horse that bears the king's crown. Okay, all that for back to our storyline. Um, verse 8, on who the royal crown has been placed, and let the robe... And the horse be handed over to the king's most noble princes. So can you give this to your most important princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback 
through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. The irony is so thick you can cut it with a knife. Mordecai has just been stabbed through the heart, poked in the eye with a sharp stick, burned every... I mean, he's just just been decimated. This is his brass ring. These are his gold rings. Of course he's thinking about me. This is what you should do to honor him. Not so much. Now, again, as Rob explained last week, this is the second most powerful man in the Persian Empire at the time. Look over at verse 12 of the previous chapter. Chapter 5, verse 12. In that account, Haman is talking to his wife, Zeresh, and his close friends. And he's talking about his glorious wealth, about his many sons, about the promotions and the king's favor that have come to him. But then then he says this, Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Talk about petty. Talk about petulant. Talk about childish. He's second in command, if you will. He's the second most powerful person, arguably, in the Persian Empire. And one guy irritates him, which is why his friends and wife said, build a gallows and kill the guy. Get him out of your radar. If this one little fly in your ointment is making your life miserable, kill him. Get rid of him. Now, don't miss a couple of things here. Number one, everybody has a constituency. Haman is, he's a turkey. That's in the Hebrew. He's a turkey. He's a jerk. But he's got a constituency. His wife, of course, which we would hope and expect, and this group of friends around him. So it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, an Independent, a Libertarian, if you're, you know, if you're a non, whatever. Everybody has a constituency because people are attracted to power and wealth and celebrities. And so when you're in a position of power or wealth or celebrity, you have people that are around you. You have an entourage, right? We all understand this very well in our, in our town. So Haman's got an entourage. Now, in studying through this and thinking about it, it struck me there was a lesson here. And it may not apply to everyone in the room, but it sure applies to most of us. Um, if, you, if we all have a constituency, we all have friends and family who will tell us what we want to hear. Psalm 101 was David's inaugural psalm. It's when he became king, arguably. He wrote this song for his inauguration. And it's a favorite of mine where he sets, it's kind of a, as for me and my kingdom, this is how I'm going to run things. And part of the psalm, he says, he, he talks about, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Uh, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I love that. David acknowledges that the origin of perversity is his own heart. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Anyone who has a haughty look, I'll destroy. He goes on. But there's this cryptic phrase in there, and he says, only the faithful will minister to me. Only the faithful will minister to me. The root words of that psalm have to do with faithfulness and integrity. That's what the psalm is about. It's about a person who has integrity and who lives faithfully. David is building a cabinet. And he's going to choose people who are going to 
minister, which means serve, serve him with integrity faithfully. Or to say it very simply, I want people around me who will tell me the truth. I want people around me who are living faithfully and will tell me the truth. Now, let's think about the constituency over against what David is setting up. I have a handful of friends that are closer than brothers. Five or six of these men have known me some more than 30 years. One goes back to being a third grade friend. That's how long we, and he was just, in, I was in Houston visiting my mom a while back, and uh, he drove up from New Braunfels, and we spent a day together, and we picked up right where we left off. We've been friends since third grade. He prays for me every single day. Um, just a, a prince of a guy. And I go back and look at these relationships, and I, I, you, you've heard me say this. They know all my secrets. They know my soul. They aren't afraid to give me what I call a spiritual dope slap. Michael, snap out of it. You're being stupid. You're being childish. You're being petulant. Whatever it is, you're being a fool. Nor are they hesitant to encourage me when I need encouragement. I trust these men explicitly. I would trust all of them with my wife, my checkbook, and the, and the future of my kids if I was gone. I wouldn't blink twice with these men taking care of my family. That's how close we are. But they have often spoken the truth in love. To, sometimes not so lovingly. But they've spoken things to me that I needed to hear. Now here's the uncomfortable question that may or may not apply to everyone in the room. Do you have some really good friends who know your soul and know your secrets? And this might be a litmus test. Have any of them come to you in the last few months and said, Michael, I've noticed something in you, and it's not good. And I've seen this, and you need to be aware of it. Because if I'm seeing it, other people are seeing it too. That's a true friend. It isn't the friend. Now, now this is not permission to go play Gestapo with people in the room. <laughs> I'm talking about people that know you inside and out for a long time that are really close brothers and sisters in Christ. And Michael, you need to stop saying that or start doing this. You know, I've seen the way you relate to your wife in public a couple times, and there's something in that tone that just kind of concerns me. Because if you say and do those things in public, it really frightens me what you're doing in private. Or I've noticed the way you're whatever. You seem to be getting short these days. You're absent. Emotionally, you're not connected right now. You're not listening to your wife. You're not listening to your children, whatever it is. Now, this may be an unfair question, and, and if it is, fine. This is important to my spiritual life, and so it may not be the same for you. But I'm telling you, if you haven't had a brother or sister come to you with those kind of lovingly confrontational questions, I'm going to ask you, do you have any really good friends? Because everybody has a constituency. And if you love them and they love you, you're willing to have that pain because they got your best in mind. They're not just busting your chops for no reason. They're saying, you know, you're, you're better than that. You're a better husband, a better wife than that. You know, I, I know you and your wife are having struggles, man, but I want to help you. This is a bigger equation than just you and your wife. This is a big situation. And if you don't have that kind of friendship, I cannot encourage, exhort, warn, caution, uh, entice you enough. Do you have some friends who will tell you the truth, speak the truth in love with your best in mind, with their best in mind? And if you do, you have a gift of God. 
Because everybody has a constituency of people that will tell you what you want to hear. Well, Haman's hubris and pettiness spill over. He whines and complains. He's got all this grandeur, but it's unsatisfying because of one Jew named Mordecai. The narrative sets up the irony, beautiful for the reader. Haman is certain the honor is coming his way, so he wants this parade. Now think about this. He wants to be dressed like a king, paraded like a king, ridden on the horse that the king has ridden on with an entourage of nobles who put him in that position and take him to the town square and show him off. That's what he wants, to honor the good that was done to the king. Joyce Baldwin writes, he could have asked for a governorship or for wealth, but he wanted to dress up in the king's clothes and ride around the king's horses heralded with his own citation. He takes a childish delight in the idea of receiving public attention for what he already enjoyed in private. I mean, Haman could have asked for anything, and he wants to dress up like a king and ride on a stupid horse? What does that tell you about the man? Well, it tells us, at least it tells me, it's all about me. It's all about me. Many scholars believe it's his overture to be the next king after Ahasuerus is dead. We don't know that for a fact. In fact, we're not going to know much about him after the story's over. Some liken it to Satan and the issue of pride, which I think has some attraction. There are two passages historically we go to to understand where Satan came from. One is Isaiah chapter 14, which I'd like to read part of. The other is Ezekiel 28. Look at what Isaiah 14 says in verses 12 and following, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, now watch the I wills, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. These, these I wills, I wills, I will, we call them hubris. Hubris is pride times ten, if you will. It's, a, it's an unbridled arrogance. And the star of the morning, the second most glorious creation in the, in the angelic realm, you've got Gabriel probably next, Michael in there somewhere, the archangel. So you have these angelic beings, and this one wants to be like the Most High. And of course he falls because of this. It's all about pride. It was the same when Adam and the woman in the garden took one prohibition. Everything's for you. Everything is for you. Enjoy it, eat it, experience it. And by the way, cultivate and keep the garden did not mean be pruning and mulching and mowing all day long. That would not be eating, that'd be purgatory, right? <laughs> to cultivate and keep the garden is the phrase for worshiping God. You're in this context that he's put you in, but there's one thing you cannot do. And what does the serpent tempt them on? And what do they say? You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. I want to be like God. Nothing new. Nothing new. It might be fair to say pride is the sin that everything else flows from. 
I want, I will, I want to do this. I want to be paraded around like the king. I want to know what God knows or what Satan said. I will ascend. I will be above the heavens. I will, I will, I will, I will. And boy, when you lay this on a culture of narcissism, it's kind of chilling. In a world that's all about me, the Western culture has become pretty enlaced with pride that it's all about me and my rights. Well, we might say the early worm was gotten by the bird. I like verse 10. I think it's one of the best verses in the entire narrative of Esther. Then the king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horses you've said. Who, who did Haman want to do this? The noble princes were to put this award on Haman. He says, okay, Haman, you do it. You've got to love the irony. Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Haman plotted Mordecai's death. God planned Mordecai's honor. That's the experiential theology here. Haman plotted and planned the execution, impaling this, this creature he hated so much, but God planned Mordecai's honor. Nothing would thwart God's plan for Mordecai. More importantly, nothing would thwart God's plan for his Jewish people. Well, the humiliation, verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse, so he's the most notable prince, and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback throughout the city square and proclaimed before him. This had to hurt. This had to be gravel in his mouth, man. Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and his friends all everything that had happened to him. And the wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. It's the worst assignment of Haman's life to go do this. And then he publicly, he takes him to the king's gate, returns the horse and rider, and then he runs like a schoolboy, mourning and crying and lamenting with his head covered, a euphemism of, a euphemism of humiliation. And he goes to see his wife and his friends. You know, he's blubbering all the way. You can't believe what just happened to me. He finds very cold comfort from his wife and friends, however. I don't know if you saw the movie Dave, 1993. Some of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Kevin Klein, um, Sigourney Weaver. Dave is a, a silly, it's a chick flick at mo, for the most part, so I'm telling you I watch a chick flick, sorry. Uh, it's a chick flick. My wife loves it, watches it when it comes on TNT from time to time. Uh, Dave is a story of a president who has a stroke, and they find a look-alike comedian guy who would go do the act, and they bring Kevin Klein in to, to be the part of the, of, of the president. And um, he, he starts to like it, and he starts to try to do some things. Well, there's a chief of staff played by Frank Langella named Bob Alexander, and he didn't like that, that this, one, this poser of a president is starting to do things. So they get in this loggerhead, and this, king, this president, who really isn't the president but looks like him, is going to fire Bob Alexander. 
So Bob Alexander sets up the president and reveals all the lies and deception and back deals he's done. And so they film this thing. I don't know if it's in the actual, it looks like it's in the actual chambers or where they made a set. It'd be an amazing task, but I think it was in the chambers where you see the president and the vice president, speaker of the house, and all the senates assembled, all the congresses assembled. And they film it in a setting like that. And uh, he says, all the allegations that Bob Alexander brought are true. And he goes, I'm guilty of all these things, and I forgot why I was elected, and I own, I, I admit it, I did all these things. I, basically, he says, I'm a lying, corrupt president. And then they show up, a, a, a takeaway shot to a hotel room, like in a real fancy hotel, and Bob Alexander, with all of his constituents, are watching on television, and he goes, die, putz. He's so excited that this wannabe president's going down. And then the camera goes back to the chambers, and Kevin Klein says, but what you need to know, opens a briefcase, is that Bob Alexander orchestrated most of this. And here are all the documents that prove that Bob Alexander is as guilty as I am. And then the camera shifts around the room and it goes back to the hotel a minute or so later. And Bob Alexander is all by himself in the hotel room <laughs> looking at the TV. That's Haman. Even Zeresh's wife says to him, hey, if, if they find out he's a Jew in the Hebrew, you're toast. You're toast, buddy. You're going to fall. And so Haman has orchestrated this noble plan, <laughs> ignoble plan, to kill Mordecai, while God has orchestrated a plan to honor Mordecai. The incongruity is hard to miss in the story. Now, it can only be hinted at in verse 13, but I like the hint. When Zeresh says about this whole, you know, you're going to fall before him, I think it's the discontinuity. She's a cold comfort to him at this point. And it may speak more, I may be speaking more than the text really tells us. The larger Jewish lesson here, though, is the people of God are going to be saved in the balance because of one situation. When a king can't sleep at night, and he asks for the records to be read to him, to put him back to sleep, let's just make that conjecture. And oh, by the way, these guys saved my life. What was done for Mordecai? And now the whole thing is turned on its head. Did anybody, did Mordecai, Esther, anybody who read the story for the first time ever see this coming? No. Because when we need God to intervene the way we want him to intervene, I would argue he doesn't. Back to Whitney Houston's song. He may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. I kind of like the theology, but I kind of don't understand why. Ultimately, he will deliver. Not in the manner or form that we may want. The ultimate deliverance came in the person and work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And we transition to celebrate this most important element that he gave us called the Lord's table. I'm going to invite the band to return invite our ushers to begin distributing the elements. And I want to read a portion of Luke chapter 22. If we go back to Abram, when God called his chosen people through a man named Abram, who will become Abraham, the chosen nation of God. And Abraham was not simply to be a Jewish nation. That nation was what? To bless the world Abraham, you will be a blessing to the world, not just the Jewish people. So it was from this Ur of the Chaldee calling of Abram that he becomes Abraham, the Jewish nation is born, and that the message will come. If you're a believer in Christ today and you're sitting in this room, 
or watching this online at some future time, if you trusted in Christ and Christ alone, he lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the dead, you've put your faith, your trust, your belief in what Christ has done in your place, on your behalf instead of you. If you trusted Christ, you're a believer. Literally, you're a believer because God chose Abram, and for him to be a blessing to the world comes the Messiah. The lineage of the covenants will come, and Jesus Christ will be born through that lineage to be the Savior of the world. So as the God-man prepares his last supper, we call it, in Luke chapter 22, when the hour had come, he reclined at table, Luke writes, and the apostles with him. He said, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I hope you pause when you read the Bible. I've earnestly desired to eat this supper with you before I suffer. That to me is evidence A for he's a God-man. Who could say, I have, I've looked forward to this because I'm about to be crucified. I've earnestly desired to eat this with you before I go suffer. And that sets up the Passover lamb. I say to you, I will never eat again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Luke and the band are going to lead us in a marvelous lyric and as, as we can sometimes do listening to a song, we don't pay attention to the lyric. I want you to listen and, and watch carefully the lyric you're about to sing as these elements are distributed, and we'll take them together in a moment.
when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us not take light these tiny little elements representing the broken body of our Savior, the shed blood for our sin. There is no other substitution for our sin. There is no other way. And he gave us this memorial, this little thing to do, to say, remember what I've done for you. Remember it was my body broken on that tree, my blood spilt to cover your sin. Again and again, the priests have the same offering day by day, which can never take away sin, but the Lord Jesus Christ, his sin, his suffering, his blood, his broken body, his blood takes away all sin. Behold the Lamb of God, the John Baptist said, who what? Takes away the sin of the world. You're commemorating that. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant, Jeremiah 31 31. Not like the old bilateral covenants, not like the covenants that waited for the new covenant. This is the new covenant. Paul said that every time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So will you say with me together, I am proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I am proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hands the Lamb in victory. Victory. 